This is the visualization that Swamiji has given us for this lesson. He wants us to see life as if we were riding on the moving ocean. Characteristic of the ocean is that the waves um, come, they rise, they fall. Some carry us to shore, some crash on the rocks. And we, riding, body surfing on the waves, really can't direct the waves. We can only be attentive and then balance, move in order to balance and cooperate with those waves. So feel that like the waves on the ocean, the circumstances of our lives rise and come to us out of a depth that we can't perceive. Even if we know that they rise from the depths of God's will or our own karma, nonetheless we can't control them in our present reality and we can't even always anticipate them or understand their cause. So ours... Our our skill and our energy must be directed in our response. So Swamiji tells us, meditate on the thought of riding the waves of circumstance. Cultivate an attitude where we don't fight with those waves or resist them, but we simply surf with them, like a good surfer on a surfboard considers it exhilarating to anticipate and to ride and to balance. So we need, as he says, to be a mental surfer, going with the currents of life, but seeking always, as you ride these waves, to to watch out for and select the best wave and the best current, because you can ride the waves wisely or foolishly, but you can never command them to be as we want them to be or to go where we want them to go. The art of success, which is to say the art of happiness in life, is to learn to flow with life and not against it. When we cooperate with the ocean and cooperate with the waves, then the skill that we develop in riding the waves is our freedom. Because then the waves come and the waves go, and our mental equanimity, equanimity, and our experience of calm acceptance is unchanged. So hold that image for a moment. Circumstances as waves on the deep ocean. Now affirm with me, I am the master of my fate. For I realize my place in the great ocean of life and flow willingly with its mighty currents. I am the master of my fate. For I realize my place in the great ocean of life and flow willingly with its mighty currents. I am the master of my fate. For I realize my place in the great ocean of life and flow willingly with its mighty currents. Om Peace.
Amen. Okay, we are now doing lesson 22 of uh, Success and Happiness Through Yogic Principles. This lesson is called Dharma versus Adharma, Truth versus Untruth. It's actually a really extraordinary lesson. Just counting on my fingers, 23, 24, 25, 26. We're really, we're down to the fingers of one hand here. Um, I was just, uh, when we meditated, we, went, we said the affirmation associated with this lesson, and I'm, I'm really struck by how important what we just affirmed is. I am the master of my fate, for I realize my place in the great ocean of life and flow willingly with its mighty currents. That affirmation is so much different than so many people's approach, um, even to manifesting. And um, a, a couple of days ago, I was asked to do a, a seminar on the web, a webinar, just in order to extract something from this course. And I chose lesson two, just more or less arbitrarily, and you know, gave a short dissertation and answered some questions on that lesson. And I was because of that I was introducing this course and trying to talk to people about why it was an important course and what distinguished it from um, others and other courses in prosperity and so on because it's a common subject to be discussed today. And I didn't say this in the webinar, but I was remembering when Swamiji first wrote this because he wrote it in India starting around 2003. It took him about a year and a half to write. And just after he finished it, he was very keen on having it publicized and so on and we were talking about it and someone asked him well what's the difference between your course and you know they mentioned a few other extremely well-known systems of prosperity his answer was extremely revealing he answered it by saying I'm the disciple of a great master that was sort of his explanation of what his wise course was different and he wasn't trying to say and therefore my course has to be better because I am the disciple of a great master What he meant was the entire perspective of this course. Everything about this course is just picking it up from a totally different angle. And the way I have articulated it on other occasions and at the beginning of this course is that most people, because most people strive for so much of their lives to, to get mastery over the material plane in financial terms, in Swami's, in Master's book, um, How to Be Happy All the Time, I was really struck when reading that how much of that book is about money? Or, let me phrase it differently, how often a master is helping people deal with the stress created by not having enough money. In other words, that that their happiness becomes conditioned because they feel a certain sense of lack in the financial area. It's not a book about prosperity, but he's responding to what interrupts the flow of people's happiness, and often what interrupts that flow is a sense of financial stress. Um... In other words, it's a really big reality in life. I mean, I'm not, this is like, duh, but nonetheless. So when people get, I mean, can, I, can you believe I just said, this is like, duh? Now, does that articulate anything? If you, that's the difference between the spoken and written word. Like, I can get away with saying that because you all understand. But if you transcribe that and you have on a sentence, like, duh, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything at all. You get away with it, but the vibrations... But I shouldn't even try to get away with things like that. But anyway, Swamiji never uses slang. And it's really interesting because when slang comes out of his mouth, this is a great digression from, I'm I'm bookmarking where I was. Whenever slang comes out of his mouth, 
one suddenly becomes conscious of the fact that slang has a vibration. And it's not particularly a high vibration. And his vibration is so refined that whenever he uses any slang phrase, which he'll sometimes do just for fun, he doesn't seriously try to communicate in slang, ever. But sometimes he'll use it. And I remember vividly when something didn't please him, and he, with all his um, natural aristocracy, he said, this is the pits, like that. (laughs) It was just so comical even to hear it. But it also makes you aware that one doesn't necessarily want to enter into that realm because it's an inexact realm and it's, anyway it's a lot of reasons so I, I retract like duh out of there but what I was trying to say is that so by the time people gain a little mastery over the material world they often feel they have a tremendous something to share which is valid because so many people are struggling with it and they want to help the people behind them come up to where they are but um, when the disciple of a great master talks to you about how to use yogic principles to have mastery over the physical, I mean, manifest on the physical plane, he's like talking about how to completely integrate all dimensions of life, which is starting with God realization, then what do we do about the rest of life? It's not like we're sort of creeping up to the point where we're trying to, to get comfortable and, you know, God realization is way off in the future. This is, God realization is the goal, but nonetheless, we have to work with this plane of consciousness. Also, the way in which we influence the material plane, when really what we're, what we're working with is spiritual attunement, is just completely different. And in this lesson, Swamiji also mentions that he starts really defining what success really is, which of course he's hinted before this, uh, when... He says, where there is dharma, there is victory. And he confesses that that doesn't mean that your business is going to succeed, even if you're forthright and honest and kind and good. He said, what I really should say is, where there is dharma, there will be an experience of bliss. And that bliss is your success. And then he sort of apologizes, essentially saying, this is lesson 22 of 26, and I've lured you in this far and made you believe that I was going to help you financially, and now that I've got you, I'm going to close the trap behind you and tell you, that you're going to be as poor as ever, but you'll be a lot happier. I mean, which is something. Uh, but he says, that's not what I mean. But he's really saying to us all the way from the beginning of this course that success has to be defined in a way that lasts. Otherwise, you put out all this tremendous effort. And that is, unfortunately, sometimes what happens when we are too one-pointed, focused on just a small dimension of reality. Um, which is could be just material success. Of course, many courses, just to be fair, that tell you how to manifest just on a material plane have tapped into higher powers. And they've, they've begun to sort of to work a higher energy. They just haven't yet um, necessarily understood the limitations of what they know. Because if you're coming up, you, you can't see from the top down what the limitations are. That's what makes this course unique. Well, this affirmation here, I am the master of my fate. Now, everyone has a way of understanding it. Master of my fate, people are always asking, what about free will? What about being able to direct things? And, and often people will promise, you can become the master of your fate. You can make things happen. You can manifest. You can set your intention. You can do this. You can do that. And maybe 
I always am a little uneasy with those things. But Swami says, starts just boldly. I am the master of my fate. But then he qualifies it. For I realize my place in the great ocean of life and flow willingly with its mighty currents. Now, whenever Swami's really asked to talk about the question of free will, he, he's, um, the, the, what I've been hearing, he may have been saying this all along, but I've just begun to hear it. He says that, you know, the opposite of freedom is limitation. If we have freedom, we have unlimited. If we're limited, then we're not free. And limitation comes to the extent that we identify with the ego. And that is what it is to not be free. As long as we are identified with the ego, we are going to be compelled by all of the realities that are associated with that. Whether we're identified with the physical body, the astral body, or even the causal body, to the extent that we identify and define ourselves as we are not, which is limited rather than infinite, then to that extent we are limited. So any discussion of freedom that is based on I want the ability to do what I want with my ego, um, there's, there's no possibility of ever being free until we transcend the ego. So it's another way of saying that there is no such thing as free will as long as the ego is asking that question. And the only freedom we have as long as we're ego-identified is whether to move in a contractive direction that makes that ego even have a, even a tighter grip on our infinite nature or to move in an expansive direction in which then we are gradually uh, loosening the, the bonds of that limitation. You see how different that is? Otherwise, people just keep playing this game, you know, of, of free will. I have the freedom to live or die, or I mean, I have the freedom to do the right thing or not do the right thing. I can enjoy myself if I want to. But it never, it doesn't make any difference. You're inside a small cage, and you walk from one side of the cage to the other cage, and you tout your freedom. Look how free I am. Look, I'm at the front end of my cage, and I don't like it here anymore. I'm going to walk to the back end of my cage. But we're not even free enough to know that we're in the cage. So when Swamiji talks about, I am master of my fate because I realize that the way to master my fate is to cooperate with the power greater than myself. This also comes back to um, ideas I've expressed in this class and in others. This um, declaration, this powerful declaration that Swamiji has made on a number of occasions echoing what Master said, repeating what Master said, which is the purpose of difficult times that are coming you know, to this age, to this world at this time, is, to, is so that people will turn to God. And people are trying to solve that, to avoid that word God or that surrender to a higher power by thinking that we'll just be very good egos. We'll be very nice egos. We'll be very generous egos. But that isn't really the problem. The problem is that we are trying to direct the waves. Even if we have a an idealistic concept of those waves. What we really need, I am master of my fate because I realize that my reality is the great ocean and I will flow with those currents. Only when the population as a whole, which master promises us, after the difficulties that are coming, that is what we will realize. We will realize that even the earth itself, we're just not in command. And that our freedom is to break this small identity and, and cooperate 
with something much bigger than ourselves. And that's turning to God. There's no other way to put that. And then, and then we'll actually be in harmony because it's this, the freedom of the ego to do whatever it wants that has gotten us into this mess in the first place. So it's, very, it's a very subtle, interesting point. Now, what Swamiji is talking about in this lesson is he's really wanting us to understand on, on a really very deep level that the purpose of this lifetime is not just that <clears throat> even by these powerful yogic principles, that it, it just all works out for us. He's saying that we're, we're, how does he put it? He puts it at the very beginning very well here. Just a moment, let me find it. The businessman's, he said, self-assumed duty in the great scheme of things is not only to earn money, but to learn the deeper spiritual purpose of all labor. That's the phrase I was looking for. We are here, he uses the businessman as the example, but we are here to learn the deeper spiritual purpose of all labor, which is self-expansion through service to others. And so, and Sri Yukteswar, he quotes earlier, so long as you breathe the free air of earth, you are under obligation to render grateful service. In the way of Ananda Sanghi, I can't quote, of the, the way of the Ananda Sanghi, which is the points that Swamiji wrote out to define what Ananda is about. He talks about how everything is a manifestation of Satchitananda, of the divine infinite bliss. And we are, bound to, we are bound together by bonds of mutual service. It's a very interesting way to put it. In other words, we all are part of the same reality and we have to work together. And that's, what, that's the whole reason why it, that the planet is constituted in such a way that we can't just sit back. I mean, we have this sort of underlying thought that if I were in charge of the universe, I remember this little girl, she was about six, very powerful personality. Someone said, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, the boss of the whole world. <laughs> very simple. Another little girl of similar willpower when she was all dressed up and I told her she looked like a princess, she became quite um, displeased with my comment. And I sort of cajoled her along a little bit and I, you know, just talked, you know, you look just like a princess. Finally, she couldn't have been more than six either. She turned to me and she said, a princess has no power. I am a queen. (laughs) I think these are karmic memories, judging from the personality of these girls. But still... You know, there's this, uh, isn't that amazing? Let's see, what was I thinking of? Oh, yes, there's this thought in our mind of uh, th- that we would like life to be easier. That thought crosses a lot of people's minds. I, one of my most embarrassing moments with Swamiji, and I mean, moments in which I made a fool out of myself, and he was kind enough not to remind me of it later, was when I was just very distressed about something, and I literally, with tears, said, oh, it would be so much easier if it weren't so hard. Which remark, he didn't, he didn't even, it like, it's like he, he, it didn't like even register, he didn't allow it even to register on his consciousness. His, his, his body and his face remained just completely still. He just stared at me. I mean, what can you say to such a remark? Yes, it would be easier if it were harder, and if I were the boss of the whole world, would I make it like that? Probably not. 
because the purpose of our labors is to expand our consciousness by learning to serve others. In other words, to identify less with the limited self and to identify more and more until our identification is infinite. And Swamiji says here, you know, for those who think the present life is the only reality, it's a little bit hard to make sense out of it. And that's why sooner or later when you start thinking these things through, you have to come to the idea that life began earlier and goes on afterwards. Otherwise, it's totally unfair. And it is very hard to make sense out of it because you can make a certain amount of progress in one life, but not that much. And a lot of great difficulties come to people and things do not always resolve neatly. I mean, one always thinks that just by the end of life all the little ends will be tied up and then you begin to see people's lives ending and you realize that they often end in kind of chaos. It's just sort of like at a certain point they, they're vaporized out of the story, but the whole story is still going on. And what, what um, Swamiji explains to us is that, and this is, this, uh, I remember discussing this at great length when we had the Bhagavad Gita course, that uh, when we describe the guru in the, the prayer, we say, Triguna Rahitam, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, beyond all three of the gunas, we're describing the guru. Because in, the, in this world, there's the tamasic energy, which is downward pulling and darkening. There's the rajasic energy, which is just activating. And then there's the sattvic energy, which is very calm. You know, calm and spiritually reminding. But the, the master transcends all of the restlessness of creation. But we who find ourselves sort of in this, we're always having to work against that tamasic inclination to have us just want to pull down and become contractive and try to find a comfortable niche and just settle into it. But the goal of our consciousness, our, the goal of our life experience, is that we have to transcend these, these, even the gunas. We have to get out of this restless creation. But the first step is we have to escape from tamoguna. The first step is we have to just get over our laziness and our self-concern and our desire to live for comfort and pleasure. And this whole planet, Swami Kriyananda described, this is a rajasic planet. I mean, not all planets are rajasic, but at this point in its development, and America is a really rajasic country. I mean, that's our, the good news. We are so busy. We are so active. We are always on the go. You go to even other cultures, Italians, you know, can spend hours at the dinner table and, you know, the French people, they just don't drive themselves, at least historically, cultures are all blending together. But Americans are always busy. And even if we're not working, we're just busy. We're always just doing some little something. So I made you just really remark growing up in Romania and then meeting Americans, and they just are always so busy doing. That's just what we're like. Now, that's also the good news. It makes it harder for us to meditate. We're not as naturally attuned to meditation as some cultures are because we're just attuned to doing. But the good news is, because we're a rajasic country, we're we're always sort of fighting against the idea of being lazy and inactive. But still, that tamasic energy pulls at us, and the struggle of all of our life, all the time, is to keep our energy up. Now, God very conveniently makes, arranges this world to make that possible for us. Because if we don't work, we can't live. And, but 
even still, the soul creates it. And Swami uses this strange example of Fiji, he said, which is about as close to a paradise as you can imagine, where everybody could just lie around and do nothing. And so instead, they make war on each other. It's just sort of like the rajasic restlessness of, of the, the soul. It just wants to make something happen. Swami described Hawaii, too, as before the Christian missionaries came and started bringing in diseases and everything else. as sort of like, like not quite incarnating on the physical plane because it was just, you could live effortlessly. The weather was such you needed no shelter. Food sources were abundant. It was just a perfectly balanced and easy life. You didn't really have to face the demands of having a physical body that the rest of us, that the world requires of us. But there's a reason for that. There's a divine reason. Because the purpose of work is to understand, is to expand our consciousness in the service of others. Now, what we have to realize, and this is what he's really trying to express to us today, is that this world is dual. And um, there's, a, there's a, the, the, the conflicting forces within our own nature are mirrored in the world outside of us. And in our own lives, we're also fighting this battle, which we've talked about on other occasions, um, we speak of the three levels of consciousness, which is subconscious, conscious, and superconscious. And the subconscious part of our nature is all the accumulated experiences up to this point. Everything we've ever done, everything we think we are. In other words, it's, the, it's sort of like all that we've accomplished up to this point is all stored in the subconscious mind. The superconscious is our connecting link to the infinite. And the superconscious is always speaking to us and telling us that we have a, a, a destiny in Satchitananda. And the superconscious keeps us restless. It keeps us restless because it is speaking to the deepest longing of our heart. And even though whatever we've accomplished up to this point, we sort of want to rest on our laurels and think we're doing pretty well, the uh, the heart within us, our, our hearts were made for thee alone. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in spirit. And so there's always this super conscious pull. You know, are you ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss? And whatever else we've already gained, I have a good family, I've gotten a good education, I'm strong in my body, I have loving friends... It's not that there's anything bad about any of that. That's what, that's what you have to realize. It's not like this world is bad. It's just that it won't ever be enough. Because all of anything that defines our happiness is in any way being conditioned by the circumstances of our life. There's two realities to that. One, it's vicarious. We haven't really, it's not really us. It's merely our response to the things around us. And the second thing is, anything that we rely upon to define our sense of worth or happiness or fulfillment is part of that sort of annoying ocean out there, which has this way of going up and then going down, and has this ephemeral quality to it. We can hold it for a little while, and then it just goes away. I mean, nothing is more like that than little children. I've always had an attraction to little children, and I thought I would have babies, but I 
gave up the idea of having babies fairly easily in this lifetime. But I still like children, and so I work between my enjoyment of children and my determination not even to want to have children ever again uh, in any incarnation, just because I really don't. I just don't feel that the direction of my own self-expansion is that way. I'm not, it's not worth laboring, it's just about me. So when I look at children, I try now to really sort of look through the superficial you know, charm of it. And But you see, my, my, just captures their parents, you know, just captures them so profoundly. But the most amazing thing about children is that they cease to exist. You know, there's something about that childlike charm and the way they love their mommies and daddies and the way they're so absolutely adorable. I mean, I see, I see big hulking people around a lot of time and I think they were tiny babies some, at one point. No, they were somebody's little boy. Swamiji gave his mother a, a, a Mother's Day card once and there's this picture of this really tough guy, just you know, like tattooed and mustached and just looked like a really character you would not want to meet in a dark alley, except he's dressed in a little sailor suit holding balloons. <laughs> happy, happy birthday, mother, whatever the card was from your little boy. So there's just always these uh, dualities that are at play. We, we imagine things one way, and then they just slip through our fingers, either tragically or not. So we have the subconscious, which is, which is wanting us to, to settle and cling. That's the nature of the subconscious. It's not creative. It just wants to not put out any more energy, but just stop where it is. We have the superconscious always pulling us. And of course, to go toward the superconscious means we have to expand from the subconscious. And in order to expand from the subconscious, we have to put out energy. Because once we are at the human level, that expansion is not automatic. When we were just animals and plants and minerals, the expansion is automatic. Creation and consciousness is expanding and we got a free ride. Once we get up to the point of the human, where we have sufficient self-awareness to contemplate our own condition and evaluate it according to our own lights and make our own decisions, then expansion is not automatic in the sense that we can delay and delay, and we can really delay, I think, nearly to infinity. So energy is required to make that transition, and that's where the conscious mind is involved. And Swamiji emphasizes, which is very interesting, we tend to think of it as three levels of consciousness, but it isn't. There's the superconscious, there's the subconscious, and then there's the battleground where the two forces meet. And that's the, the battlefield they call in the Mahabharata, the Kurukshetra. That's the battle of Kurukshetra, the battle for our consciousness. And we often feel that way, don't we? It's like some part of us is so absolutely clear-minded that this is the direction I'm going, and then lo and behold, we just get sucked back into what we used to be. And you make that decision over and over and over again to really transfer our loyalty and our commitment from the subconscious to the superconsciousness. And the whole of life is the battle of Kurukshetra and everything that's given to us in our life experience is the, wor- the working out between these two forces. The subconscious is another way of talking about karma in the sense that it's the c- accumulated understanding and effect of everything behind us. 
um, subconscious in this sense means that it's, it's below our level of awareness for the most part. But it keeps you know, sending its soldiers onto the battle of Kurukshetra. And the things that happen to us are the superconscious trying to draw us forward and then these forces being drawn into the light, almost like, if you could think of yourself as all these different parts, it's like you begin to flee toward the superconscious and then you discover you've got all this moss on you and all these things that are dragging on you and these things in your hands you didn't even know you were carrying. And then all of that begins to crash together. Now, the, what is uh, reflected, what is expressed in our individual consciousness is also manifested in the world around us. The, in, the entire state of the material plane of this entire planet is also um, a, a, an exhibition of these two forces at work. And this is the force of maya, is what it's called then, which is this outward moving, this, this force of energy moving away from the spirit uh, or, or committed to, to staying in material form and and the world around us manifests for us in outward form all different um, expressions of this inward battle. And so what Swamiji is writing here is that if we imagine that just because we're a good person, just because we have good intentions, that, that we're going to be able to just move forward with our good intentions without any opposition, this is extremely naive. Because there's always going to be a duality in this world. And, and what we're really here for is to, is to do battle with those forces. And naturally, our um, difficulties and our karmic tests and the, the adventure on the battle of Kurukshetra from subconscious to superconscious is going to also have an outward form. And often that outward form is... Um, what I was trying to say is it's just going to happen. And we have to have, as part of our understanding of how to manifest and how to be successful, is that obstacles are part of the pathway to success. And we, we need to, like he's describing in this lesson, we need to realize that the ocean is just going to be churning and storms are going to come across it and waves are going to come up. And that we can't imagine that we're just going to chart some path in which that's never going to happen. And Swamiji is very strong in saying this. The more powerfully we strive to do good, the more original our ideas are, the less content we are just to settle for the mediocre, that we will attract. It's just we, it demands that kind of forward-moving energy simply demands an equal and opposite reaction. There's just, it's inevitable. And I remember years ago, many years ago, the community of Findhorn in Scotland. It was founded by a man named Peter Caddy. And they had worked very hard. This was in the 70s when Ananda was starting. Findhorn was one of the other really notable communities in the world at that time. So there was an affinity between us. And Findhorn had worked very hard, you know, put out a tremendous amount of tapasya and energy to um, build this beautiful temple. And very shortly after it was built, somebody burned it. It was arson. It burned to the ground. 
So it was, you know, it's tremendous effort on the part of the community and this huge success was just neutralized. And it was neutralized not even by an accident, but it was neutralized by a malicious act. Ananda Village, um, when, back in 1971, when Swami Kriyananda finally, after living in San Francisco and working for the community, finally got himself moved up to the village, um, the temple burned down also. Like, it, I think on the July, around the beginning of July, as I believe, of 1971, just burned to the ground. I came in August of 71, at which point it was a building site with some charred timbers. But that at least was an accident. But Findhorn was worse because it was burned down on purpose. And uh, Peter Caddy came to visit Swamiji and they were chatting about it. And Swamiji expressed some, you know, sympathy for the fact the temple had burned down. And Peter Caddy just laughed and he said, oh, he said, if they're not persecuting you, it means you're not working hard enough to do good. (laughs) He said, it's always a good sign when somebody tries to stop you. I know it's just such an attitude and that's the truth. It's always a good sign when somebody tries to stop you because if you're not making enough of a difference, the divine opposites would not even care. Now that is really, I am master of my fate because I see that I am part of a great ocean of reality and I can just flow with those currents that come. So we have very strongly in our mind that if somebody doesn't like us, if somebody opposes us, um, that something is wrong. I remember when we were in the middle of um, all those lawsuits at Ananda, somebody tried to get Swami to, now we should really think about, you know, what is it in us that's attracting this? You know, what are we doing? Swami says, this has nothing to do with us. Just like he just wouldn't have any of it. He wouldn't have any of that sort of dark kind of introspection. This has nothing to do with us. He says, we're trying, we're doing a self-evidently good thing here and Maya is trying to stop us. And that's a very important point because sometimes we, especially nowadays, we exaggerate too much that this has some personal meaning for me. And Swamiji really wants us to understand that's another really important point of this lesson. It doesn't necessarily have to do with, it's not even a punishment that things are going very difficult for you. As much as anything, it can be just a reward. It can be a reward. Look, you're doing good work. And, and there's a point at which too much self-preoccupation is really uh, the opposite direction of where the tests are trying to take you. That was Peter Caddy's attitude. Oh, who cares? And then Swamiji also mentions in here you know, that there are people who make themselves the instruments of this um, dark, mayic force. Just as we're talking about how we can become channels of the light, we're trying to manifest harmonious qualities, we're trying to get the power of the universe behind us, just as um, just an equal possibility is that individuals will align themselves with a darker force, that they will, they will seek power, but not power through, it, through a diminution of self. You know, the, the yogi seeks power by a lighter and lighter identification and a greater identification with the infinite, some individuals seek power by identifying themselves with the, with the, the dark force, the destructive force, and they, whether they, they're consciously aware of cultivating that or not, but they're in tune with that. And such people will lie and will be malicious just for the sake of being malicious. And in our culture right now, we're so confused, you know, the idea of getting vengeance and getting one up on people and 
in our, quote, best universities, the emphasis is continually on competition. I, I've quoted in here, you know, the things I've heard of in places like Harvard or Harvard Law School, look around, three out of five of you won't be here next year, you know, are you going to be one of the winners or the losers? You know, so the whole orientation, instead of saying, so let's work together to keep us all in school, you know, let's be supportive of one another. It's like you've got to focus yourself down and be one of those who triumphs instead of one of those who's crushed. And businessmen will teach other businessmen, you've got to just think of yourself and the bottom line. I mean, those are attuning yourself with a certain kind of power, but it's not the power in the end that will give you success because the purpose of work is self-expansion through serving others. But people driven by the subconscious become confused. Oh, the more I have for myself. Last week I was talking about those, the stages of, of awakening consciousness And I was talking about the self-centered stage, which is, you know, ahead of being completely tamasic, completely having no energy or interest in anything creative. But when energy first begins to arrive, it's all about the self. What What else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself? And because there's no moral principle and there's no identification with any reality greater than the ego, what difference does it make if I hurt you? If I'm smart enough to figure out a way to hurt you, then what, what, why not? It makes my position better, so it seems. And that is just a very common attitude. And that can be a very common attitude among people who are highly educated and have great position and, you know, just unspeakable. I became, it's, it's moot now, but I, I've never been fond of Hillary Clinton And I became extremely unfond of her when I watched one of the debates early on between her and Barack Obama. I mean, quite apart from who should be president or anything, I'm not even trying to talk politics. But it was an amazing thing to watch. I, I don't like her because I've always felt that she was somewhat ruthlessly ambitious. Whether or not that's true or not, that's what I witnessed. She was there having a debate with him, and she brought up some fact that she knew would have a certain mileage in the debate. I don't even remember what it was, but it was an absolute distortion of the truth. And I watched her do it, but she knew that she could misrepresent it just enough. I mean, this was my belief of what happened, but there was this look on her face when she did it. And there was also a look on his face, which was, I can't believe you're doing this. And then he tried to establish the truth, and she just had this kind of, Like, if I can get away with it, then I can do it. And to a certain extent, she got away with it. But I thought, God, I don't want anyone like that in a position of power because where there's dharma, there's victory. When Ananda was involved in those awful years of the lawsuit, on many occasions, these people just stood right in front of us and with this pleasure in the pain they were causing. They enjoyed causing pain. And this one attorney would lie about everything. He would lie about things that there was no advantage to him to lie. He would lie about things that could be discovered immediately were lies. You know, like the store across the street is closed when it's actually open. And Swamiji um, wrote in the Gita commentary that people who are in tune, in that case he spoke of tamasic energy. Now don't think of tamasic as necessarily being low energy. In that sense, it's darkening energy. People who are enamored of darkening energy tell lies 
simply for the pleasure of the chaos it causes. And that was 100% of what I saw in this man. He enjoyed it. And when you're up against such people, and believe me, you will be. And this is what Swamiji also wants us to understand. Don't be children. Don't, don't be like little innocent kids just wandering around thinking everything's going to be nice, nice. It won't. It's, it's a, and Swamiji writes about it in this lesson. He says, you know, Master's enormous successes did not come effortlessly. And he writes about it in a very interesting way here. Master was betrayed. Master was sued. You know, people um, told lies about him. He was slandered. He had to fight. He, was, he had financial problems. He had to fight every inch of the way for what he accomplished. Just as he was William, you read the life of him when he was William the Conqueror, it was war after war after war. And then he'd get things in order and some other idiot would betray him and he'd have to go over and fight that one down and then he'd turn his attention and then this one would go after him. And you think, for heaven's sakes, couldn't they see what they had? No, they couldn't. And because he was putting out so much power, everybody else was struggling. And it was true of Master's life. And Swamiji describes, and it's always a sort of a dilemma. It's like, I've deliberately not emphasized that. Why would you want to emphasize that? What you want to emphasize is the joy of his success. You don't want to always be concentrating on the hardness of the struggle. But he then goes and tells us, you know, a few incidents, because you also have to have a realistic idea Now, of course, in the West, we have Jesus and Jesus being crucified, even though that's a pretty sorry ending to the tale on a certain level from the point of view of those who did the crucifying. And when when Jesus was praying, you know, let this cup pass from me, what he was praying is, you know, can't you help these people? (laughs) Can't they figure out that they shouldn't be doing this? This is so bitter to have come to help them and have them just turn on me like this again. I mean, that was the bitterness of it. But we always have that example in the West. It's always in front of us that here was the incarnation of love and divine attunement. And wow, look what happened to him. And we know even the word, of course, to be crucified means to be tested and pushed to your limit and have very hard things happen. It was a kind of crucifixion, you will say. And what that means is that it rivals what happened to him, even though we're not being literally nailed to the um, cross. But there it is. And it tells us that that great goodness can also attract great darkness and that that's what this life is. That's not an aberration. And that is not a sign, as I was saying, that there's something wrong with us. We don't necessarily have to be in tune with that darkness for that darkness to want to test us because these are the waves that we have to ride. Something has to come to us in order to help us to grow. Otherwise, you know, we just live and we die and then a whole other incarnation has gone through. If we're not pushed beyond what we already know, and that's why it's not like every life has to be a challenge, but if if circumstances are not pushing us you know, to the, to, toward self-expansion, it behooves us to go out and seek an opportunity to keep expanding. That's why we want to get engaged in service. That's why we want to be engaged in meditation. That's why we want to do as many kriyas as we can do. That's why we want to generously support a spiritual work. That's why we want to go on a, you know, to a, 
a habitat for humanity or to some foreign country and do medical service. We're just looking for ways always to be going toward self-expansion in the service of humanity. And the reason, of course, that we're, we're there to serve others is because serving others is a way of declaring um, outwardly and inwardly. It's not just I. I'm not just responsible for myself. I'm bound to all sentient beings in a bond of mutual service. Why? Because that's who I am. Why do we take care of ourselves? Why, why do we eat? Why do we rest? Why do we groom and clothe and protect this body? Because this is my sense of self. I feel responsible for this. My happiness comes from my experience of this one I'm in. But what if we realize that we are one with all beings? Then our happiness comes from offering, lavishing the same care and attention on all of them. And so we practice. And we practice and we practice. We loosen the bonds of identification. We don't think our money is just for ourselves. We don't think the food we have is just for ourselves. The shelter we have, whatever it might be. It's a very um, deep self-realization purpose in that kind of service. And if we're challenged with negative energy, if we're challenged with negative people, then what we have to learn, and this is how Swami describes it in there, we have to learn to have an attitude that doesn't cause us to contract, but an attitude that allows us to expand even when it's not so easy. Um, As Jesus says in the Bible, it's not enough to love those that love you. Even the tax collectors do this. I mean, this is such a wonderfully insulting statement. You know, even the, the Pharisees and the tax collectors love people who love them. You have to love your enemies. And it, it, was, it was a profound self-realization teaching. In other words, you have to identify so completely with a reality greater than yourself that how that reality responds to you is not the defining factor in how you define, respond to them because one, has, one is no longer identified with self so narrowly that that little interaction is the definition of how I respond, you see? And that's why God sends us these things. All right, let's take a brief break and then we'll finish this lesson. I've been talking here about the inevitable um, experience of opposition and sort of how we have to be ready for it and all the sort of soldier in me is marshalling the troops within myself to face all of this. There's a story that Swamiji has told and he's been telling it for as long as I've known him, which is 40 years now. It's, it's very, very interesting. I'm, I'm adding layer upon layer here. But when Swamiji wrote The Path in 1976 is when he started writing that or finished that. He wrote it for a couple of years in there. He commented in, I think, the introduction to that book or somewhere in it. He said, before I could write that book, I meditated on every instance of Master's life until I could really understand it and understand why he did it. And then he was able to begin to write about it. And I've certainly found, I've studied Swamiji's life more than I've studied Master's life because I've seen Swamiji's life up close and I've had to write about it. And even in the book that I wrote in a couple of places, or more than a couple, in quite a number of places, as I began to describe incidences, suddenly the intention behind them unfolded. In one of the stories I even said that as I was writing this I've always thought that it was just a a certain meaningless incident but now I realize it had a deep purpose. Well Swamiji has told us repeatedly the story of how 
when he was in the very early years of Ananda and there was so much struggle to get the community going and so much opposition from so many people, he commented once to a friend that just how easy his life was. Nothing, you know, nothing. He never really seemed to have any problems. And the woman who had a completely different orientation, what are you talking about? You've been nearly foreclosed upon. This man has betrayed you. These people are fighting you. And she listed out all these different things. And he said, oh, just like, oh. And then, as he writes in here, he said, and then he promptly forgot about it. Just promptly put it out of his mind again. Because he never defined those things as obstacles. They were just simply what he had to deal with. He just, what he had to do, it was his job. He got up in the morning and, oh, well, now this person's trying to foreclose on me, so I have to figure out how to keep them from foreclosing. And it, for him, it was just a matter of energy. Why bother to define it as a problem? Why think of it, as he says in here, why me, why is this happening? That whole thought is what just exhausts you. Because you're just going to have to deal with it. And we were saying just a moment ago, it's like, Yogananda created the energization exercises. That was his original contribution in the sense that a master often brings forth some relatively, you know, like some new idea that people haven't done before. Kriya is an ancient technique which he was the instrument for for reintroducing it. But he always describes it as reintroducing it. Energization system is something that he developed himself out of the eternal truths, of course. But because energy is the key, because this is the age of energy, but also energy is the whole key to success on the spiritual path. Because when somebody's trying to foreclose on your community and you've just spent years getting your community established, what that means is now you have to direct a great deal of energy toward that situation. You have to step-by-step deal with whatever that entails and you have to complete the, the project that that situation demands of you. You see, I'm using all the words except solve the problem. And so for Swami, it was just, well, I get up today and this is what I do. I have to work with whatever is at hand. I am master of my fate because I'm part of a greater reality and I ride those waves. And the more we can just ride those waves, and the, but that's what he's trying to say to us here. Don't imagine if you're really trying to make a life that matters that you're not going to be challenged to put out a great deal of energy. And challenged, perhaps, to put out energy in ways that you didn't particularly want to put out energy. When we were in 12 years of litigation, it just took so much energy. It was just such a nuisance because there were so many other things we wanted to do, but we had to just keep directing energy. And we had to direct millions, literally millions of dollars which represented, you know, phenomenal amount of energy that just had to be directed to that issue because that's what the universe had given us. And we could have lamented, and from time to time we did say to Divine Mother, why are you doing this? But in the end, it still just had to be dealt with. What difference did it make? We just had to do it. And if if we never allow our consciousness to sink into the thought, oh, now I've got it made, Now all my problems are behind me. Now we're firmly established. Even in the midst of that litigation, when there was this, you know, seemingly real possibility that we could lose everything material that we had built. We could lose our buildings, we could lose our communities, we could lose our land, everything. I often, as I've shared with you, 
I worked myself through that by just thinking, well, we'll just be standing on the sidewalk together. And if we don't have any, even have any cars, we'll just go catch the bus. But we'll just do something. We'll just go forward again. Because what difference does it make? It's just one damn thing after another anyway. So if it's not the one we chose, it'll just be something else. When, we, when Ananda Village was struck by a fire in 1976, and the afternoon that it happened and it started ro- rolling up from the other side of Rajasi Ridge and came up to Rajasi Ridge and then crested and started down the other side, heading for what is now Hansa Temple, but was then the publications building. And we saw that it was really coming in that direction. A number of us streaked up to the publications building because that was before the age of computers and everything, and we wanted to get the... We were looking for the original negatives for the books and you know original recordings and the mailing lists and stuff like that because it was all material things in that building that just could have been burned to ashes and we you know just pulled everything out and put it into trucks. This was all you know very. I think I, I was in I was a key person in publication, so I was running around telling people where things were and where to push them and put them, what to take, what not to take. I, I went up to the press, which weighs 5,000 pounds, and tried to lift it to see whether we could get it out. That wasn't a good idea. Somebody started to take the copier machine, and my well-known remark was, I said, leave that, it's rented. <laughs> and we just you know, took everything out of there. Now, where was my thought? But my whole thought at that time was, what will we need to start over again? Because we didn't know how much of the community was going to go to ash at that point. None of the public areas did. That building didn't burn in the end. The only thing that burned was private homes. Nothing that was, nothing that was community burned. Yeah, it burned all these private homes, but nothing else. But we didn't know that. But then there was also, I remember running up the hill with someone, literally, physically running up the hill and sort of talking as we were running, you know, what will happen if the whole community burns down? And I mean, um, some, a third person said that, and Seva and I said, just sort of looked so started, why we'll build it again. I mean, what else would we do? If it gets taken down, we'll just put it up again. But that's the spirit that you want. And there's actually a photograph of me, which Swamiji often comments on, like a few days later we were clearing brush, and I'm wearing this shirt that makes me look like a bumblebee. It's a, it's a big blue and uh, yellow shirt and we were clearing the brush and by that time we're having a great time and there's a picture of me and I'm laughing lifting this big branch and for Swamiji it became like the symbol of Ananda's spirit I, when it, I, my bumblebee shirt made me very photogenic because the reason I was laughing is because there was a whole crowd of us who were having such a good time because it was so insane the whole thing was just so nuts but you know there we are okay it burned down now we'll just clear it out and start over but you see everything about our lives is like that and whether we take it that way or not, that's our freedom. And we have to practice all the time. That's, that's, this is one of those things where we have to practice all the time. We don't have any margin. My friend Paula, when she had cancer, and uh, I don't really remember exactly what the context was, but we were talking just about what this might mean because she, she decided not to take chemotherapy. And we were just discussing whether she should or whether she shouldn't. And my answer, I, when we were talking about it, I said, well, chemotherapy can give you time to reorient your thinking. And if you, if you need some time to reorient your thinking, you may need to have the chemo to buy you time. And then she sort of commented. And she says, you know, it's really nice now because I don't have the luxury of having a single negative thought. 
And I love that because after all, I have cancer. And if I have any negative thoughts, I'm going to die and I'm going to die really soon. So the luxury of negative thinking is gone. I mean, she was the sweetest person on the planet or one of them anyway. But I love that, the luxury of a single negative thought. And that's what Swamiji is trying to say. What I was saying about that story, about problems, what problems, he's told that story over and over and over and over again. And, you know, here it is, I see it in the context of this lesson, and all of a sudden, I, you know, I can recite that story. I can understand that story in any language he tells it, because all I need is a word, and I know what that story is. Sometimes when I'm listening to him talk in Italian, I can understand a lot of what he says, because I know what he's going to say. Because he'll tell a very apt story, he'll make a principle, and all I need is a few words to know what they are. So I can follow it without being able to speak Italian at all, unless he really goes completely somewhere I've never been and then I'm just totally lost. But hearing that story in this context, oh, I see. Swami's telling us how to manifest. You try to manifest. Maya will oppose you. So what? Why even think of it as a problem? It's just what it takes to get something done and we just keep at it. What difference does it make? And, And then you can see why He'll, he'll often repeat these stories. He'll tell them again and again and again and again. Because the, the, if we can grasp the consciousness there... I observed, because we're talking about opposition, I keep going back to the, our, our years with, uh, of litigation. Years when we were the victim of litigation. I don't want anyone to think we actually initiated it when we were being sued. And Swamiji would, Swamiji would have these depositions and because the lawyer was such a lawyers were such scummy people. They always wanted to just keep the depositions just hovering around as much negative reality as they could. And you know, depositions are very wide open and the depositions in these lawsuits were just used to bankrupt us and to try to upset him and you know, so they really just hovered around negativity. And Swamiji has a has a positive memory. That's the only way I can put it. It's not that he's stupid. He can put his mind on things and understand them perfectly well. But why remember them in the negative? So they would try to like characterize situations in such a way that Swami literally would not know what they were talking about. Because he might have known the facts, but he never characterized them. You know, so what about the time when everyone was against you? So why were they all so opposed to you? I, I, I don't remember that, he would say. And you know, later we could reconstruct, but he he didn't recognize it from those words, it, and it, well, that was the result of a deliberate effort, and not a deliberate effort to be naive, but to expand his sense of identity. So when somebody's really terrible to you, what does it have to do with you? And he even talks in here about how when his guru buys treated him so egregiously, and he he never t- turned against them, and he. He articulates, well, because I'd rather love, because I feel better when I love. And then he confesses in here, the truth is I just said that for the benefit of others so that they would at least have a way to think about it. The truth is he said I was never tempted. It never crossed his mind. The thought, the mere fact that they opposed him had anything to do with you know, why, would he, why would he be negative? Merely because they behaved toward him in this certain way. The way he, he described it, he articulated it in another context. He said, I have this quirk to my nature. The way I feel toward people has nothing to do with how they feel toward me. 
It's just, I, I assume a stance, and I just hold that stance. What does it matter if they respond or don't respond? What does it matter if they return my friendship with animosity? This one man who just made an absolute career at Ananda of hating Swami Kriyananda. And once he, he was just in the community for a few years, and then he left and lived in the area, and the poor man was just eaten up with hatred for Swami. It was really sad. And Swamiji met him once in a public place and just put his hand on his arm and he said, listen, he said, if I were Satan himself, it's just not worth it. <laughs> it's, just not, it's not good for you. I'm just looking at him, just talking to him, you know, just friendly, like this man has done his very best to destroy Swami. And all Swami says to him is, you know, this isn't good for you. Have you considered that? Because what does it have to do with me? You see what, how marvelous that is? Because then I am master of my fate. I am part of this great ocean and there's sharks in this ocean and those sharks are swimming around. Just like that story of that wonderful sadhu who went out to the village and then the boys were throwing stones at him because he was such a, so unusual. And he comes back all bloody and bruised. He says to his fellow monks, oh, we had such fun in the village today. The boys were throwing stones and... It just didn't cross his mind to say they were throwing the stones at me. He just observed that they were all having a really good time throwing stones. But these are not, these are not realities beyond the reach of the average person. And we, we mustn't think of this, oh, that's so magnificent. It really, I mean, yes, but it isn't really that hard. One, it's like we're so much happier if we don't allow ourselves to just get sucked into negativity, just because this person is an awful pill, and you know, and just because this person has made a career of trying to destroy me, and just because this person has actually succeeded in taking from me something that was really mine by right, by nefarious means, he's taken it. What does that have to do with me? These are just the currents in the ocean. We don't have to sit and agonize about it. We don't have to wonder. That was Swami's prayer to Babaji. Babaji, why are you letting these really adharmic people have power over me? That was the situation in the lawsuit. He became very puzzled. And his, his inward response, he prayed to Babaji. Babaji said, they're all my children. And, and that's such an interesting statement because, okay, well, so-and-so really needs to have the experience of you know, being evil. So this evil, this person gets to behave in a very evil manner. It doesn't make him any less a child of God. It doesn't make his divine destiny any less certain. It means that he's creating some bad karma for himself. That's really unfortunate. He'll have to suffer for it. And, but that just makes you feel badly. I was so, and I can only use this word, I was so proud of myself on the actual day that the verdict in the Bertolucci trial came. And the Bertolucci trial was a pack of lies from start to finish, completely accusing Ananda and Swami and all of us of just being, well, morally depraved. That's the only way I can think of to put it. I, I, was a, I had to testify in, uh, when Daniela was caught in a lawsuit. I, I got myself into a position where I could help her, and it, it involved my having to testify in court. And... Uh, the other guy tried to, to disconcert me by referring to the lawsuits that we'd been through. And I, I mean, poor man, he didn't have a chance. He didn't know who he was dealing with. <laughs> but I'm talking to the judge, and so we're having this little conversation. Yes, there were two lawsuits. There were two lawsuits here. And, 
you know, the judge or somebody said, did you win and did you lose? And what were they about? Well, one was, you know, intellectual property rights. It was really church against church. And the other one was a, a attempt to destroy our character. So in, in, one, in the one we prevailed, and the other we were, oh, we were accused of being, I said, we were accused of being morally depraved. <laughs> and she said... And what was the result? I said, well, the intellectual property one, we won. And the other one, they decided that we were morally depraved, you know. (laughs) And it's just like, well, they did. They decided we were. So what can I say? That was what the verdict was. So Amy just says, you know, tell people first. Don't let them accuse you of it. Just tell them. I mean, the judges didn't know what to do because there I am. Oh, yes, we are morally depraved. That was the verdict of the court. So obviously it was hard to get real hot about it and didn't work to disconcert me. But when the actual verdict came down, literally when we're sitting in the courtroom and the jury has come back and this was the one where we were declared morally depraved, it was so odd to me because when it became obvious to me that we were going to lose and that this jury, because of the insanity of the American court system and because of these poor jurors who never had a clue as to what was really going on in that case... They had decided against us in favor of these extremely dishonest people, these morally depraved people. But the first thing I thought was, I felt so sorry for the people who won. I really did. It was really a peculiar. It was just grace descending because I thought, oh my God, not only did they do this awful thing, but now they've won. And that means that it's going to take them a really long time to understand what they've done. You know, this is going to like, now the, all, all, the, all the lies and dishonesty is going to puff them up and then they're going to have this whole experience of this being the right thing and the, the karmic consequences will be even worse. And I mean, I know that was true, but afterwards I thought, wow, that was great. I could never, I never would have anticipated that I would have been so able to stand back. But, it, you know, it's a benchmark. You just sort of stand back and you think, well, but that's the truth. Why would one feel any differently if you want to be happy yourself? And so we just have to ask ourselves, every time we get sucked into these, what everybody else considers to be perfectly common attitudes, someone was, you know, working through grief about something or another, and I, I must confess I just got impatient. I Sometimes I get impatient. So that she was really working through all this grief. And I said, you know, I know it's common wisdom to think you have to go through all this grief, but why? You're a yogi, for heaven's sakes. You don't have to grieve. You don't have to grieve. And her response was, well, that's an interesting way to look at it. How else do you want to look at it? It's like we really have to fight against the, the, uh, what I would call the popular idiocy that tells us we must suffer or somehow or another we're not doing our job. We're not doing our part. You know, our part in Maya, that's what Maya tries to tell you. Swamiji said once when he was, um, he was working, when he was working to build Ananda and he was so busy and he was teaching all these classes and doing all this driving. And at a certain point he was driving, I think across the bridge, one of the bridges over here. And he said he felt this cold try to get inside of him. And immediately he said, get out, get out! You know, just drove it out. And he said, Part of what happens when Maya enters you is that it persuades you that you have to relate to it. I love that phrase. It persuades you that, oh, 
well, he's treated me that way. I really have to think about this. I want to be sincere. I, you know, I have to explore my feelings about this. I have to wonder why this happened, and then I have to grieve. You know, no, you don't. It can just come into you, and you can say, just get out. I don't want you. I don't want any of those attitudes. I am a master of my fate. If you can do whatever you want, I'll just ride the waves. And, and the other part that, that Swami puts in here, which is very important, he said, you have to behave, behave appropriately, and that does not mean that you do not respond with strength. And he gives several examples of Master being fierce in the face of opposition. And I can certainly give you examples from the struggles that we had. Swami was, has always been, when he wants to defend truth, he will defend it with every ounce of his energy. And interestingly, in all the years of attacks we've had, I've observed he never lets an attack go unanswered an insult, a, a, an article, he always counters with a strong force. Not because he needs to justify himself, but a, a negative force has been put at him and he will push it back. He always pushes it back. Even when others of us would just say, oh, just let it go. No, he never lets it go. He'll write a letter. He'll, he'll make a statement. He'll take an action. I would almost say without exception, he does not let a strong, a strong attack, I don't just mean somebody with low energy, but a significant effort to diminish what he's doing, he will always stand up against it. Kindly, but but with commensurate force. So we mustn't think that a kind of just letting it roll over our head is always the proper response. If something is really trying to take away from us who and what we are, we have to stand in front of it and say, no, because that's where our strength comes from. Because too much, just sometimes just letting it go is just thinking, I'll just duck this one. And that'll be the way it, it ends. You know, very, it's very fun. I think all those years of opposition for us were just training on how to be good devotees. Because this is the battle of Kurukshetra and we are being attacked. We, we, we're being attacked one way or another all the time. And we need to become, you know, masters of ourselves like Yudhisthira and Arjuna and Bhima and be able to stand firm in where we're going, no matter how high the hills, how deep the valleys. But that's the fun. You know, that's, it's not, this isn't a problem. This is the fun, is that you never know what's going to happen next. Ananta is the master of that. In fact, somebody was telling me a story. She'd always seen the pictures of Ananta in the deep, muddy Ananta's, of course, one of the founding members of Ananda. Very recently, this woman was telling me she's new at Ananda. Um, two young men went up to use the backhoe. Everything was all worked out as to where all the, all the pipes were and so on like that. They, and the first time they put the shovel in, they broke the main water line because, of course, it wasn't where anybody said it was. And then the main water line is just, you know, blowing up everywhere. And they're Practically, they just don't know what to do. So they call Ananta, and they're sort of standing on the side, kind of, you know, poking at it. And as the story was told to me, Ananta shows up. First thing he does is laugh, and the second thing is he just steps into the hole because <laughs> there's no other way to deal with it. You know, you had to, he had to just get down in there and he had to wrestle the pipes back together. But, you know, he, the first thing is to laugh, and the second thing is to dive in. Why not? Because you have to live anyway. And what we really want to be is free. So why should we think that challenges that make us bigger are anything but God's way of making us free? It's all just in how we turn and face it. 
Yes, it takes a lot of energy. When Ananda burned down, what I was talking about, I mean, when so much of Ananda burned down, we went right through it. You know, we came out the other end. But I have to say, by the end, it burned in June, by like September. We were tired. <laughs> it's hard, it was hard to remember a, a fall when we were so tired as we were at the end of that one. Because it had taken a lot of energy to come up to what we had to do and give it our all. But we were perfectly happy. We were just a little fatigued because it had taken a lot of energy. But my, 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 it was the making of us. Isn't it so often those are the stories you tell? I mean, how often do we get around and relive the camaraderie of the trenches, is how our attorney called it, just and remember that battle, because we know that those were the moments that make us who we are. So I think that's enough on that subject. Is there any comments or questions before we call it a night? Okay, so we have done 22. We're up to 23, 